thank you, Jenny and Renee, for that beautiful number. Well, today we continue our look in the Gospel of Luke at some of the hard sayings of Jesus. And today we're going to look at Luke chapter 12 and verse 48. The message entitled, Much Means More. How many of you prayed for God's blessing in your lives this week? Oh, you don't need to lift your hand because I'm sure every hand would go up. It's right that we should pray for God's blessing. We know that it's only by God's blessing on our families, on our ministry that we share together at Grace Church Roseville that, that we're going to progress and grow. God's blessing is vital to our future. As we frame the future, as the phrase is being used, in such a way that more people will be able to hear God's word and be ministered to and be changed from seekers into followers, which is our vision. God's blessing will be absolutely crucial. But I wonder sometimes if we realize the ramifications of that prayer. When we ask God to bless us, do we understand the ramifications of praying for God to do good things in our lives and in our church? Because you see, as God answers that prayer, as he blesses us, it makes us more accountable to him for our lives. Harry Ironside wrote, It is a principle of scripture that responsibility and privilege go together. When God commits any talent, ability, or knowledge of truth to his servants, it is that they may use all for his glory. Harry Ironside is talking about the verse we're going to look at today. It's really the last part of verse 48. And it says this, And from everyone who has been given much shall much be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. What we are seeing in this verse is that our blessings increase our responsibility. That is the gist of this hard saying of Jesus in Luke 12, 48. Now to understand what Jesus is saying, we first need to take a look at the broader context of this verse. And to do that, we need to back up a few verses to the first of the chapter, the very first verse of chapter 12. Luke says, under these circumstances, and we'll see what that means in a moment, after so many thousands of the multitude had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples. So here is an occasion where there are so many thousands of people gathered to hear Jesus that they're crawling all over one another. And Jesus uses this occasion to talk about some important themes. He addresses these themes first to his disciples and then to the multitude that was gathered. Basically, what Jesus is saying in his broader teaching here is that there is great danger at looking at life through defective lenses. 
I just got some new glasses this week, and I can't tell you how nice it is to be able to read without having to take my glasses off. You know, as you get older, things happen to your eyes. Oh, you'll understand when you get there someday. And for the last number of months, I've had to look through glasses that were increasingly defective for my deteriorating condition. <laughs> and so I finally bit the bullet, bit the bullet, and went out and bought some new glasses so I can see better. Not perfectly, but better. Jesus is warning us here that as we look at life, we need to be careful that we're looking at life through glasses, through lenses that are giving us the right picture. And to that end, he warns the disciples, the multitude, and us about certain things. For example, in verses 1 through 12, the warning is about hypocrisy. Through hypocrisy, we have a defective view of ourselves. We think of ourselves in a way that is contrary to the truth, so that we present ourselves to others dishonestly. We're, we're playing a role. We're being hypocrites. And Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Leaven, you recall, was, is like yeast and is that which causes bread to rise. Leaven in the Bible is always a picture of sin. Even a little bit of yeast affects a lot of dough, and so a little bit of sin affects our lives. Jesus is saying, beware of this leaven of hypocrisy that belongs to the Pharisees. He goes on to say, there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. You see, the Pharisees were guilty of cover-up, of hiding the truth about themselves and pretending to be something they were not. They had a defective view of themselves. They thought they were righteous, but their righteousness was only exterior, not interior. It was a righteousness of outward action, but it was not a righteousness of the heart. Jesus warns us of hypocrisy. You say, well, why does Jesus start out with the Pharisees and with hypocrisy? Well, if you just back up a little further into chapter 11, you'll find out why. Go back to verse 37 and notice that when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. And he went in and reclined at the table. And when the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that Jesus had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. Did Jesus just forget washing his hands? Was this some neglect on his part? Absolutely not. Jesus set up the situation. He was invited by this Pharisee to come to lunch. And as part of the preparation for the meal, a good Jew, a good Pharisee, would wash his hands in a particular way several times in order to be ceremonially clean. It really had nothing to do with hygiene. It had everything to do with this attitude that righteousness is in what you do, not who you are. And so the, the Pharisee was surprised 
that Jesus didn't go through all this ceremonial washing. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. Dale Carnegie would not have approved of this approach at engaging this man in conversation. He goes on to say, You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Then Jesus goes on, verse 42, verse 43, verse 44, to pronounce a woe to the Pharisees, a way of pronouncing judgment upon them. And then one of the lawyers who was present, now understand this is not an attorney at law like we have lawyers today, although verse 46 says, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weighed men down with burdens hard to bear. And we might think it applies to some lawyers. However, these lawyers were a specific kind. They were Jewish lawyers. They were people who dealt with the law. Many of them were Pharisees. And probably that was the occasion here. Now, the lawyers were always interpreting the law, trying to fine-tune it and come up with new regulations that would keep people from breaking the law. But you see, all of these were outside, ritualistic, external kinds of rules and regulations. But that was their job in life, to set up rules. And so Jesus pronounces likewise three woes upon the lawyers, the Jewish lawyers. And then in verse 53 it says, When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. So you see their heart attitude is hardening. They are hostile toward Jesus now. And that's why Luke says, as he does in verse 1 of chapter 12, under these circumstances, when this crowd had gathered together, Jesus first of all warned the disciples and all of those within hearing, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Then Jesus moves into another theme, beginning in verse 13 and actually going through verse 34. It is a theme of greed. A greedy person has a defective view of his possessions, what he owns, the material things of life. He sees the things that he owns as the sum and the substance of life. To him, life is about what you can possess, what you own, what you can do with it, how rich you can become. Now, he began to teach about this theme because someone in the crowd said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. <laughs> can you just see the whine in this? And there may have been a legitimate complaint. Some suggest perhaps this is a younger brother whose older brother, the eldest in the family, got more than he did, which was according to the law. Apparently the older brother wasn't dividing it rightly, and so he complains to Jesus, and Jesus responds by saying, that's not my realm of authority. You know, that, that's something for somebody else to worry about. <clears throat> but he said to them, beware, and be on guard against every form of greed. 
For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Boy, that is big news to most Americans in 1999. Because right here is where the popular culture is. The understanding of having a successful life and being an important person lies in what you possess. Jesus says, beware of that kind of an attitude. It's defective. And he tells this story that we've looked at before, so we'll not go into detail about it, about the rich farmer who laid up his goods, and yet on one night God said, your soul's required of you. He says, you're a fool because you have not laid up things toward God. And Jesus concludes that story by saying, so is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich <clears throat> excuse me, toward God. <clears throat> and then Jesus launches into a related subject regarding worry. Worry is sometimes related to greed. It's a defective view of one's possessions, worrying about them, being anxious about them. Jesus spends a long time talking about that. He concludes by saying in verse 34, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He says, that's why you should lay up treasures in heaven. Because your heart follows your treasures. And if you are greedy and you lay up treasures for this life, your heart will naturally go in that direction and be focused on this life and this world, and you will be greedy and anxious. So he says, lay up treasure in heaven because your heart will follow in that direction. And your Father knows that you have needs of these things on the earth. Trust in him. Then in verse 35, Jesus launches into another theme. Here he is warning about negligence. He seems to be pointing out the defective view that one, one may have regarding his responsibilities or his blessings in life. He warns that we need to be watching and waiting for his return. That we need to be working in the light of our coming accountability to the Lord. When the Master comes again, we must answer to him. And then he concludes this part of his teaching by warning that life will not be easy for his followers. Therefore, they must not be reckless. They must not be careless. And then, to conclude the broader context, and we'll come back to our verse, in verses 54 through the end of the chapter, and really into chapter 13 and verse 9, the same occasion, Jesus is warning about incognizance. That is, being unaware, being spiritually dull. And he gives two parables in this part of his teaching to illustrate the importance of discerning the times that we live in. And then being diligent about the issues of life that threaten us. In other words, coming judgment. And this part of his teaching, he especially focuses upon the multitude at large. Up to this point, it seems to have been focused primarily upon the disciples. But here he particularly broadens it, it says in verse 54, to the multitudes. 
and he warns of being spiritually dull and undiscerning. Here we have a defective view of one's times, the times that one is living in. Jesus says, you can tell the weather. You know it's going to be hot today. If you can analyze the sky and know what the weather is going to be, can't you analyze the times that you're living in? Good lesson there for all of us. But having looked at the broader context, I want us to come back now to that particular verse that we're examining this morning, verse 48. <clears throat> Notice that it fits into this teaching about negligence. <clears throat> Excuse me, about being careless with one's spiritual responsibility. And the basic principle that Jesus is giving here in this verse is this, that we are responsible for the privileges and the blessings that we are given. Now, whether they're spiritual or material or some other, Jesus says we are responsible for our privileges and we will give an accounting to him for our privileges. Let's go back and look a little more in detail at what Jesus has said before. He says in verse 35, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. And here he's using the picture of an oriental wedding. And the servants of the master are at home waiting for the bridegroom to come with the bride. The wedding is over. He's coming back home. He says, keep the lamps lit for the bridegroom. Be waiting, be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes. Then notice what Jesus says. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whoa! This was not difficult. Because normally when the bridegroom came back with his bride, he was the one who was served. It was his party. But Jesus here twists the story. He, he turns the table at this point. He says, when your master comes, he's going to serve you. He's going to wait on you. It's going to be your party. So be watching and be on the alert for his return. Verse 40 says, You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And Peter says, Lord, are, are you talking to everybody or to us? Lord, who are you talking to here? Jesus doesn't answer him directly, but... He indicates by what he says that he's especially talking to his followers. He says, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom the master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Jesus is saying that a master will look for a faithful and a sensible steward. And when he leaves, he's going to give the steward responsibility for the other servants. He is to care for them, to give them their rations, 
their food, their necessities at the proper time. <clears throat> Jesus says in verse 43, Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. The slave has been given the blessing of leading others. The slave has been given privilege. The slave has been given responsibilities. He's a steward now. And Jesus says, blessed is the one who's doing what he's supposed to do when the master comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. In other words, there is a reward. In other words, there, there is a promotion for the one who fulfills his responsibilities well. But, Jesus warns, if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming, <clears throat> and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. This is figurative language. Obviously, if he literally cut him in pieces, he wouldn't be assigning him a place with anybody. In other words, he's going to cut him down, as we would say, and he is going to assign him a place uh, with the unbelievers, that is, those who did not believe he was coming back and were careless. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will shall receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it did not know his master's will and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but a few. And from everyone who has been given much shall much be required, and to whom they entrusted more, or much rather, of him they will ask all the more. So there's how that hard saying of Jesus fits into the context of this occasion. Jesus is saying that we, his servants, his followers, are stewards, that we have received from him blessings, that we have received from him privileges, that we have received from him responsibilities while he is gone, and that we are not to neglect these. We are not to keep the blessings to ourselves. We are not to overlook what we're to be about. We are to use our blessings. We're not to hoard them. We are to fulfill our responsibilities, not shirk them. And he says, the more that we receive, the more for which we must give account. So that's why I began this morning by saying, did you pray for God's blessing in your life this week? Because if God answers that prayer, as we hope he will, it will nonetheless in the end make you even more responsible to God. Because the more that he gives us, the more responsible we become for our use of the blessings that he gives. If we receive much, we are all the more responsible in the final accounting. 
Now I want to get to the bottom line and then we'll be done. The bottom line is this, that there is a day of accounting that is set for you and for all people. There is a day of accounting that is set for you and for all people. Daniel Webster, the great American patriot, said, my greatest thought is my accountability to God. Would that that were the greatest thought of our leaders today. It makes a difference. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. The accounting. Now, it doesn't come immediately, <clears throat> but it comes in the future. And it will come when the Son of Man returns. There is a day of accounting for all of those who are unbelieving, for all of those who reject Jesus Christ. In Acts 17 and verse 30, the apostle says, God overlooked the times of this ignorance, but is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. All everywhere from the islands of the sea and the, the tribes that have never been reached to the multitudes of the most populous nations of the world, all everywhere are commanded by their creator to repent of their ignorance. Their ignorance toward him. Their refusal to know him and to give him thanks as the creator. God commands everyone everywhere to repent. And he goes on to say in verse 31, because he, God, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. And lest anyone wonder who the man is, he says, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So we know it's Jesus. What Paul is saying is that whether Jew or Gentile, whether civilized or pagan, poor or rich, all men everywhere are commanded to repent of their sin and their spiritual ignorance, their willful spiritual ignorance, ignorance because God has appointed a day when they will be held accountable. He has fixed a day. And Revelation 20 describes that day. It doesn't give us the date, but it describes the day. It says, And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. We don't have to guess as to who that is. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. There was found no place for earth and heaven, it says. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And may I say that anyone who appears at this particular judgment will not find his name in the book of life. The book of life is there as evidence that the fact that they are condemned because their name is not there. And it says that these who are lost, who have been the unbelieving through the history of the world, will every one of them stand before God, and they will be judged according to their works. Twice it emphasizes that. And what this hard saying of Jesus in Luke adds to the equation is this. That those who have received much light about God in this world during their lifetime will have a more harsh judgment than those who have lived and died with very little light. Now all have light of revelation if not from the word of God, from the creation of God, so that all are accountable to God, Romans chapter 1. But Jesus is laying down a principle of accountability in Luke chapter 12, and he is saying that those who have rejected great light, who have understood Jesus Christ coming, his death and resurrection for them, and who have neglected it, or who have rejected it and said no to him, that they will receive a greater judgment in the end than perhaps that tribesman who lived in some place where the gospel is not even yet proclaimed, and who will die lost and condemned in his sin, and justly so. But his condemnation in the second death in the lake of fire will be less because his light is less. Because to whom much is given, much shall be required. How great will be the judgment of those who have lived in our day. When the gospel has been so readily available in many parts of the world, like the United States, where it is available in print and is broadcast over the airwaves day after day in almost every community in our nation, how severe will be the judgment of this generation at this great white throne? This judgment looks at the accumulative weight of the works of the lives of every lost person. And their eternal punishment will be determined accordingly. Actor W.C. Fields, just before he died, was in a hospital. And a friend walked in and surprised him one day, and W.C. Fields was looking through his, a Bible that was in the room. His friend asked what he was doing with the Bible, and W.C. Fields responded by saying, I'm looking for loopholes. Friends, there are no loopholes when it comes to the judgment, the final judgment. There are no loopholes. But, but there is an escape. 
And that escape from this final judgment is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and recognizing that on the cross, he bore your judgment. He bore your eternal death. He bore the penalty that you deserve for all the sins of your life. He died in your place. So that now if you will trust in him, his death will pay off your sin debt. And he will give to you his righteousness. And my friend, that's the only escape there is from this judgment. Some poet has captured that thought in this way. On him, Jesus, on him almighty vengeance fell, which would have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for a chosen race and thus became our hiding place. He is the escape from this judgment. Judgment is coming for every lost person. <clears throat> but judgment is coming for every Christian, too. And I cannot close without pointing all of us in this direction. <clears throat> in Romans chapter 14, it says, But to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Remember, in, in Rome, they had that problem that none of us have ever faced where they were judging one another. And he says, why are you judging your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? Why do you look down at your brother in Christ? He says, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. As it is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, writes Paul, each one of us shall give account of himself to God. Don't go around judging other people and condemning and looking down upon them. He says, you just take care of yourself. Because each one of us will have to stand before Jesus Christ someday at the judgment seat. In the Bible, it's called the Bema. The Bema, the the place of accounting or the place of reward. The bema was a seat in the public place in ancient cities where, for example, athletes would come to receive the award of the city because of their success in the games. And that is the picture Paul draws upon when he speaks about the bema of Christ. We believers whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, thank God, will not stand before him at the great white throne judgment that we've looked at a moment ago. But we will stand at the Bema. We will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And to whom much is given, much shall be required. The examination on that day will not be to determine saved or lost. That's settled at the cross. The examination on that day will be for rewards based upon our stewardship and how we have used the privileges and the gifts the opportunities and the blessings that the Lord has given us in this life. It will examine how we have used our lives to serve and to bless others. Those with greater gifts and greater callings will have a greater judgment, greater responsibility. I suppose a lot of us have thought, oh, wouldn't it be fun just for a day to be Billy Graham? 
to sense being used of God in such a significant way to preach to, I don't know, a million people, say, on television? But friend, remember what Billy Graham does remember, that on this day, his accounting to God will be greater than yours because he has received more opportunity than you've received. But lest any of us relax and say, well, I'm sure glad that's passed, remember how many there are in the world who have so much less than we do. Paul says to the Corinthians, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. The suggestion, at least in that verse, is that on that day the Lord is going to find something for which to reward each of us. But the point is, what ought that reward to be? If we really used our opportunities and our privileges well, if we really were diligent and we were watching for the Lord's return, if we were ready for the Son of Man when he comes, how much greater our reward might be. Alexander McLaren, the great Scottish Presbyterian, said, the judgment seat is meant for us professing Christians real and imperfect Christians. And it tells us that there are degrees in that future blessedness apportioned to our present faithfulness. What McLaren was saying is that there will be varying rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. And just as Jesus suggests that the faithful servant will receive more responsibility if he's done well, so in the future kingdom, those who have done well serving him in this world, who have fulfilled the responsibility God's given to them, will be given reward in the coming kingdom to serve him. And likewise, those of us who have just blown off life, those of us who just lived as though all of this didn't really matter in the end, we're saved and that's all that counts will not only lose our reward, the judgment seat, but lose out the possibility of, of reigning with Jesus in his kingdom in some position that he might give us because we didn't prove ourselves faithful. We do not know when our Lord may come or when life's day of opportunity will close suddenly for us. How well we've been reminded this last week how even the young can die suddenly. Therefore, all of us must live with diligence, waiting, watching, and working for the Master. Let me close with this poem that says, When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ and he shows me his plan for me, the plan of my life as it might have been had he had his way with me. And I see how I blocked him here and I checked him there and I would not yield my will. Will I see grief in my Savior's eyes, grief though he loves me still? Oh, he'd have me rich and I stand there poor, stripped of all but his grace 
while my memory runs like a hunted thing down the paths I can't retrace. Then my desolate heart would well nigh break with tears I cannot shed. I'd cover my face with my empty hands and bow my uncrowned head. No. Lord of the years that are left to me, I yield them to thy hand. Take me, make me, mold me to the pattern that thou hast planned. Let's pray together. This hard saying of Jesus, that to whom much is given, much will be required, is one that should sober every one of us. May the Holy Spirit just apply it to our hearts now as it needs to be. And if, in fact, we have been shirking our responsibility, if we have taken for granted and abused the blessings and the privileges that God has given us, let's have the same attitude that this poem writer did. Lord of the days that are left to me, I yield them to thee. Friend, we don't want to come to that judgment seat of Christ empty-handed and uncrowned. We want to hear, well done. Father, may it be so that that would be the passion of our hearts. Help us to hear the words of Jesus, to take them seriously, to apply them to our hearts. And then out of that, we pray that you will bring forth fruit in our lives. Lord, you taught us to pray for your blessings, and we do. But oh, we also pray that in the blessings, you would also give us diligence that we may use those blessings well. Because someday we will give an account to you. And to whom much is given, much will be required. Sing with me this song, if you will, just in closing, a cappella without any instruments. All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence daily live. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. Lord, help us to be good stewards of ourselves and the gifts you've given us and to understand the times in which we're living and to expect your return shortly and to be watching, be working for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.